Yuval Levin is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he also leads the AEI Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies program. He is the founding and current editor of National Affairs, the senior editor of The New Atlantist, and a contributing editor at National Review. Dr. Levin focuses his efforts on looking at the foundations of self-government and the future of law, regulation, and constitutionalism. He also explores the state of American social, political, and civic life while focusing on the preconditions necessary for family, community, and country to flourish. Dr. Levin has served as a member of the White House domestic policy staff under President George W. Bush and was also the executive director of the President's Council on Bioethics and a congressional staffer at the member, committee, and leadership levels. He's also a colleague and a friend whom I have the deepest respect for, and he joined me recently for an interesting conversation about technology, conservatism, and modern society. I hope you'll enjoy it. Yuval, I have told you before uh, that I am a huge fan of uh, your scholarship and your work, and it is a great pleasure that you're taking time to join me for this conversation. Well, thank you very much. The feeling is mutual, and I appreciate the chance to chat. So um, I always begin by giving the guests an opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about themselves, where they're from, how they got into uh, the policy business, uh, and uh, a little bit about their education, you know, normal biographical stuff. So why don't you lead off with that? Sure. I, I was born in Israel um, in 1977. I'm an immigrant to the United States. My family came here when I was eight. Um, I grew up in Philadelphia and then in New Jersey and uh, then went to college uh, in Washington, D.C. at American University. I went to I went there because I was interested in politics, and um, while there as a student, I worked uh, on Capitol Hill for a variety of members of Congress, and eventually for the House Budget Committee, and ultimately after that for uh, the Speaker of the House at the time, Newt Gingrich, at the end of the 90s. Um, I went to graduate school when Newt lost his job, um, and uh, I went to the University of Chicago to a program there called the Committee on Social Thought, which is a kind of multidisciplinary uh, PhD program in the humanities and social sciences, a very University of Chicago kind of thing. Um, and there, I really, my degree is more or less in political theory. Um, and I'm interested in, in a sense, in the question of what it takes for a free society to sustain itself. Um, one of my teachers at Chicago was Leon Cass, who uh, was also an AI scholar for many years. And in 2001, while I was finishing up my dissertation, um, Cass was chosen by President uh, Bush, George W. Bush, to chair a commission on bioethics. And because I was a student of his and because I'd worked in Washington before that, he asked me to come and work for him. And so I found myself uh, working kind of at the intersection of politics and academics uh, in Washington running a presidential commission. I was a staff director after a little while um, of the President's Council on Bioethics. Through that work, I met some people in the Bush White House, and when Bush was reelected, I ended up uh, working at the White House for most of his second term as a, a staffer in the Domestic Policy Council, working on health care, some of the welfare portfolio, uh, veterans, a few other issues. And um, after that, I went into the think tank world. I was uh, at the Ethics and Public Policy Center for about a decade and have been at AI since uh, the middle of 2019. And while at EPPC, I started a policy journal called National Affairs, um, 
a little over 10 years ago now, which uh, came with me to AI. And so what I do now is I'm, uh, I, I, I run a division of AI focused on social, cultural, and constitutional studies and um, editor of National Affairs. So talk a little bit about what you're trying to do with the work at AI now. So, so social, cultural, and constitutional issues yeah. are issues that have been engaged for a long time at AI, but, but you are doing something specific. What is that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say the reason that I came, and, and as I say, I came in, in June of 2019, which is when Robert Doerr became president of AI, and it was because of his interest in these questions too, the basic idea is that the kind of public policy work that we all do at this place and that think tanks do in general has been having a lot of trouble getting heard in recent years because of problems that amount to a breakdown of our political culture, uh, which makes traditional public policy debates very difficult to have. And we thought that the problems that are embodied in that breakdown deserve to be studied in their own right as as think tank questions, as questions for scholars like us. And that really means studying the health and integrity of American institutions, which is what we do, both the institutions that are upstream of politics, family and community, religion, civil society, and the institutions that are the infrastructure of our politics, Congress and the presidency, the courts, the electoral system, federalism, uh, the, the party system, these are our subjects in a sense. We, we are almost a kind of political science and sociology department within the think tank, but the questions we study are actually very central now to public policy because they are prerequisites for having traditional sorts of public policy debates and also because reform of some of the institutions I'm talking about, and especially the constitutional system, is really essential if we're going to be able to address the kinds of problems that our society confronts in the coming years. Reform of the Congress, rethinking uh, some elements of our electoral system, revitalizing federalism. These are just absolutely essential if our society is going to hang together in the years to come. And uh, that's what we're focused on. Some of these have certainly been questions that AI scholars have dealt with in past years, but the emphasis, the focus on it, and also some of the hiring we've done to bring people under one umbrella who study these questions on the right um, is new. And so that sounds a lot like the central thesis and the driving thoughts in your in your book, A Time to Build. Um, and and in that book, you talk that you you've got a dedicated chapter on like technology and and its place in society and what it's doing. And I want to pull that string in just a moment, but but unpack a little bit more about your thesis in A Time to Build. You've you've mentioned our institutions. You've mentioned reforms that are necessary. What what is the underlying assessment that you've made? Uh, and then uh, what is the prescription that you lay out in, in that book? The book really begins from the, from the fact that we are living in something like a social crisis at this point in America that, that presents itself in a variety of ways from, from intense polarization and culture war combat to uh, breakdowns in people's personal lives that lead to higher suicide rates and, and an epidemic of opioid abuse. And these things are ultimately connected around a sense of estrangement or alienation, a sense that people have that this country is working for other people, not for me. Um, and that sense has a lot to do with the breakdown of institutions, a breakdown of confidence in institutions that ultimately is rooted in a breakdown of institutions themselves. And so the book tries to think through what really is an institution? What is it for? 
Why is it important? Why does it matter? We tend to see through institutions in American life. When things are going well, we don't need to think about them, and we don't think about them. When things are going poorly, we're not very good at seeing that the problem is present there. Um, And among the ways in which our institutions have been losing our trust, I argue, are not only uh, that loss is not only a function of some examples of incompetence or corruption, which are certainly present in our time, but are present in every time. But there's also a distinct kind of breakdown in our time that looks like a transformation of what we expect institutions to do from serving as as molds of character and, uh, and, and expectations to serving instead as platforms for individuals, as a place to stand and build your personal brand and build your following and be seen. A lot of people who work within institutions now behave as though they stand on top of institutions as individual performers. You see that in Congress, you see it in journalism, you see it in public health, you see it in the academy, you see it in American religion. And that kind of breakdown, which is, which is a function of the kind of fragmentation of our culture, the forces of individualism, it's also very much driven by some technological developments, has a lot to do with why we now find it harder and harder to trust our institutions. So that a restoration of that trust requires some recovery of a sense of identity rooted in institutions, a sense that before I act, I should ask, given the role that I have here, what should I be doing? A question that we too easily now miss and ignore. Yeah, I was just thinking that, I mean, and, and this is essentially your point, but just everything in modern society pushes against that 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 moment of pause and consideration. Right? Absolutely. And to, to, to think about this next act, to think about that beyond, will this get me more followers? Will this like go viral? Right? Thinking beyond those questions, yeah, there's a lot of static in the in the in the line that prevents people from kind of engaging that. What what has eroded public value of it? Because as you describe institutions, there is a sense, I think, in a lot of people's ears where that sounds quaint or outdated or obscure, you know, like our our society seems to be leaning against um, kind of valuing institutions per se, and much more toward an individualistic atomized notion of of authority and and value. How did we get there? Yeah, you know that's a that's a story that I try to tell in a, in a in my previous book, which was called The Fractured Republic, that tells the kind of historical narrative of American life from the middle of the 20th century into our moment. That is basically a story of what I would call liberalization. American society in the middle of the 20th century was very consolidated, very cohesive, had tremendous trust in institutions. I think, in a lot of ways, excessive trust in institutions, and yet at the same time, the culture of that moment was screaming for liberation from conformity uh, on the left, certainly, but also on the right. You know, if you, if you look at the, at the opening editorial of National Review, which we think of as saying uh, the magazine's going to stand athwart history yelling stop, the rest of what it said is an extraordinary statement of libertarian resistance to conformity. Um, it, it, it's not all that different from what you would find in the culture of the left in those years. And beginning in, in, in that mid-century moment, American society 
worked to liberalize itself so that instead of everything telling everybody to be more like everybody else, every voice in American life now tells everybody to be more like yourself. Um, and that leads to economic liberalization, giving people a lot more choices and options. It also leads to cultural liberalization, bringing people in from the margins to the mainstream and uh, creating much greater variety and diversity. A lot of this has been very good. The downsides of it have to do with a loss of solidarity, a loss of common purpose, a loss of a sense of cohesion and of confidence, confidence in institutions. Um, that story is complicated precisely because it is both good and bad. And the, the fact is the hardest thing to, to accept about American life for people like me who try to analyze social change is that America is always getting better and worse at the same time. And that means that when we think about problems, we have to also think about the, the advantages and improvements of which those problems are often just the other side of the coin. And so I think that the, the fragmentation we live with now, the breakdown of confidence, the radical individualism, is the other side of the coin of greater diversity, of, uh, of greater freedom of choice, of greater liberalization, which is a very valuable coin. And so we have to think about how to address that problem without losing the benefits which is no easy thing. In a sense, that's the challenge of our, of our time. Yeah, and it strikes me as a very conservative uh, worldview in the sense of there are always trade-offs. Yeah, I'm certainly guilty right. of that. I, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> okay, so in my, to, to kind of turn to, to tech now, it would seem, based on just how you've described the situation, um, that the emergence of um, kind of modern media and particularly social media would seem to be a key accelerant to the types of atomization and distinction driven um, kind of social norms that you're describing. Is that right? And if so, how? I do think so. Uh, I, I think it's important when you think about technology to begin by thinking of it as a tool. And so by asking not what has it done to us, but rather why have we chosen to use it like this? And so what it tells us is something about what we want. And I think the way that we use social media, what we've made of it, is not just a function of its design of the algorithms that's connected, but it has that design out of a sense that this is something people would want. And to the extent that it's succeeded in really transforming our social lives, as in many ways it has done, it's because we wanted this. And what is this? I think this is uh, a, a, a way to combine fragmentation with social interaction. In a sense, social media um, allows us each to function as a kind of mini celebrity, to build our own circle of followers. You know, we hound ourselves for photographs like paparazzi. We always are thinking, how is this going to look to the people who are watching me? Um, it, it allows us to engage in a kind of sociality that's actually highly individualistic. Um, and so, in, in a sense, you get some of the benefits of being social without some of the costs of being social, which is essentially time with other people. Um, you know, and, and I think that in that sense, social media and really the internet in general has allowed us all to be functional loners, um, to, to do what we want to do in life without spending a lot of time with other people. 
that's one way to think about the, the way in which social media has changed some of the nature of what it is that we engage in when we, when we are social with one another. Another important facet of it, though, is that it, it separates out the elements of social engagement. And actually, this is something that's really come home to me over the last two years in the, in the course of the pandemic. Social interaction has two parts to it that can be thought about separately. One is communication, and the other is communion, right? Communication is exchanging information. Communion is being together, actually being with other people. Communication and communion are very different from each other. They're not the same thing, even though in, in the human experience, they're generally so connected that we think of them as one thing. The, the social media, and in some ways, especially the, 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 the strange socialized isolation of the last few years, of the last two years of the pandemic, has really separated out these two elements. And we do a lot of communicating now, but we don't do nearly as much communion as we used to. And it turns out that communion is especially important for formation, for helping us feel like we're part of something rather than just individuals who are kind of linked by a string. And so in that sense, I think social media has really exacerbated some of the isolation, alienation, sense of estrangement that people feel. Because even though it's easier than ever to stay in touch with people, it's actually become harder over time to feel like part of something. And social media should make us think about the difference between those things. Yeah, that provokes a number of thoughts. Um, the first one, one of the this, this is the a follow-on to the kind of double-sided coin notion. Um, picking up on your com- your communication and and communion point, social media and online communication has, as you said, allowed us to to self-isolate in, in in ways that we we probably previously could not. At the same time, it is also allowed maybe this is an abuse of your term, individuals to commune uh, with like-minded individuals who they might not have been able to find and and engage otherwise. And and frankly, that's that's typified by by not great relationships, right? So individuals who have abhorrent worldviews or or, 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 are of a political persuasion that are uh, unhelpful to society and even to themselves – Finding each other and then having that reinforced through the medium of social uh, media and, and, and online communication in a way to where they at least have some shadow of communion. So it, it feels more than just communication. They feel like they're engaging with their people. I finally found my people mm-hmm. in a way that they typically could not do offline because those views are often ostracized and pushed to the periphery. But because they're able to find each other online, it feels more like a community and they're more deeply integrated into those communities. Is that, is that right? Or am I, yeah. am I off? Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I would say though, that it encourages a kind of, um, a, a, a kind of one dimensional engagement across one vector of extreme connection. So we share this idea and we're going to engage with each other in a way that only involves this idea. In, in, in the real world, even when you're spending time with people who share your interests, you're also spending time with people. And so you learn something about them, about their family, about their habits, about their peculiarities. You're not just connected with them as, you know, along this one plane where this is the thing we're doing together. 
And I think that turns out to be very important. There's a way that this kind of um, this kind of, of one-dimensional engagement makes it very difficult for people to moderate their, the intensity of their engagement, and so to moderate themselves in general. There's also a, a, a danger to this kind of thing that has to do with the very straightforward fact that w- connections like this over the internet are not constrained by place. Uh, this is actually an old concern about democracy. If you look at Federalist 10, James Madison there is worrying about whether uh, a republic is really sustainable. How will it not fall into factional civil war? And he says the United States is going to be so big that it's just not going to be possible for people to connect across states, across the range of this country um, in ways that could endanger the republic. There'll be factions here and there, but they won't be able to arise except by negotiating with each other. The internet, in a way, by enabling a kind of placeless democracy, allows these more extremist factions to form without regard for place. There are only a few people who share this view in this community, but there are a lot more in other places. If you add them up, they become a meaningful faction in our society, and they overwhelm one of the defenses that are kind of implicit in our style of republicanism. And I I think in some ways, the reason that social media has led to the growth of political extremism is that it allows for uh, these kind of intensely engaged people to find each other and uh, to reinforce each other. And, you know, the effect that it's had on politics is not, I think, what anybody would have predicted 15 or 20 years ago. Um, it, it, it's, it, there was much more optimism about what the internet could mean for democracy when I was a graduate student at the beginning of the century um, than anybody would possibly have now, because people just did not expect this effect to come. Yeah, I, and honestly, that type of, I think it's, at least I would describe it as kind of a naive techno-idealism. Uh, yeah. it, it actually persists, right? So um, last week, Mark Zuckerberg uh, announced the rebranding of, of his company, Facebook, into Meta, and that was intended to reflect the company's uh, broader focus on building what they call the metaverse, essentially the <clears throat> the online world, uh, which is a mix of um, augmented reality and virtual reality, um, and one of the key initiatives in that is building online spaces using virtual reality technologies so that you can begin to bridge that distinction. The intention is that people be able to bridge that distinction that you're drawing between communication and communion, mm-hmm. building online worlds where you where you're actually have a greater sense of presence with people uh, online. Um, as I see that, I mean, the technology itself is easy to be astounded by, and I, I've played with it a little bit. And, it, and you know, there there are some um, some real innovations in sense of a sense of presence, but I don't think it fundamentally changes the things that you're pointing to. And I think it may actually only deepen the type of individualistic atomization that you're describing as being a critical corrosive to our kind of body politic. Yeah, I, I, I tend to think that too. I mean, I, I, I couldn't help but, but experience what Zuckerberg described as a kind of nightmare um, because I think that it mistakes the problem. It assumes that the, the problem to be solved 
is the friction of the real world, is the, the, the difficulty in connection that's a result of the fact of distance, of the fact of difference. Um, it, it seems to me that those, those sources of friction force us to socialize, to moderate ourselves, to humanize, to take other people seriously, to make room for differences, the kinds of things you've got to do if you're going to succeed as a free society. And to eliminate those sources of friction is just a way of making it easier to be antisocial. Um, and, you know, I don't think that's an advantage. In some important ways, some of the most significant tools that, uh, th- that, that the information revolution has made available to us are ways of making it easier to be at least asocial, if not antisocial. Even apart from the internet, where, or, or at least apart from social media, if you think about the ways that we've made uh, shopping easier, that we've made, you know, you can now kind of like order food, walk into the restaurant, pick up a bag with your name on it, never say anything to anybody. And, um, you know, you can get in a car, it'll take you somewhere and you leave. And, and then you rate the driver having never talked to him. These are ways of being functional loners, right? They're ways of making it easier to not be uh, a social person. And if a society of diverse people is going to thrive, it needs to socialize people. It needs to help us deal with people who are different. And I'm sure Zuckerberg's motives are good here. He thinks he is helping us deal with people who are different. But it seems to me that what he's doing is undermining our capacity to shape people into more social creatures, which is, uh, which is essential. Now, I imagine a lot of listeners will, will understand and even embrace, you know, the point that you're making, but will then essentially kind of throw up their hands and say, well, I mean, we're not going to get rid of smartphones. We're not going to get rid of social media, it seems. So, you know, I mean, are we just doomed? Is there, is there something that we can do? Is there a place here for, for government or is this all just up to individual users making individual decisions? So I don't think we're doomed. Um, and I, I, I will tell you, frankly, I'm just not capable of despair about America. Um, I, I just think it's always a bad bet and that it's not a constructive way to think about the future. The question for us is, given that these are tools, given that these are technologies, they're not actually our masters. They don't own us. The question for us is, what do we want to do and how do we want to live? And I think that it has become a very widespread view now that there's something wrong with the culture of social media. There's a problem here. If that's a very widespread view, that means there's some room to do things differently. Now, it's not going to happen by itself. I, I'm, I am a hopeful person. I'm not an optimist. I think hope exists in this kind of middle space between despair and overconfidence. It, it says it's not true that everything's lost and there's nothing you can do. It's also not true that everything's fine and there's nothing you should do. What's true is that there are ways to improve things and we should aim for those and work for those. I think there are ways to use social media that can be much more constructive than what we do now. They have to take some account of the importance of the real world. They have to, uh, they, they have to serve as a kind of additive and not a substitute for a, our actual social lives. And it seems to me that the hunger that a lot of people feel for for communion, for real social engagement, for belonging, for solidarity, um, will guide us toward ways of building different kinds of models for social media that ultimately will find their customers. 
this is a moment where Americans really want solidarity. I think a lot of what's going wrong in our politics is actually a kind of misguided search for solidarity, whether that's evident in a kind of identity politics, whether it's evident in various forms of nationalism. These are ways of trying to somehow belong. And there are going to be healthier ways to answer that hunger. We're still new to social media. And, you know, we're not just going to keep living in filth forever. We want better. And so ultimately, people will find ways to give it to us. So there's this uh, old maxim in, in newspapers, right, that if it bleeds, it leads, right? And it's the idea that I think it's always been the case um, in, in, in every form of media that the more... Uh, salacious, uh, the more violent, uh, the the more provocative content um, drives engagement, right? It it, it drives it in yeah. newspaper ads and in in, in articles. It, it drives it in commercials. Ever since the advent of of television, uh, and and it certainly drives. Well, number one, it drives our our politics, right? So. Um, you won't have to, you're welcome to comment on this, but I'm not going to ask you to comment on it. But every time there's a, a congressional hearing and a, and a politician from the dais goes after a social media company for doing, for using outrage and, um, you know, other provocative content um, to, to attract users. But then if you go and, and look at their latest political ad <laughs> right. yep. and you consider the rhetoric that they're using and what they're saying about their opponent as though they're somehow not participating in that game is uh, is striking to say the yeah. least. So, um, so in one sense, I I am taken to. So, I am not uh, a pessimist. Neither am I an optimist. I like the distinction you draw in terms of hopeful. Um, but I am one of the people who says fundamentally, and we can we'll talk a little bit more about the modality of some of these social media companies. But fundamentally, the problem is us. Yeah. I, I am I am convinced of that. It, it's it's what our appetite uh, is. It's it's what we're willing to pay for and what we're not willing to pay for. Um, my hope is that that appetite can be curbed and that through uh, in in part institutions can begin reshaping us and those appetites so that they're more um, uh, well so that they're better so that they're better for mm-hmm. uh, us as individuals and as a society. Um, well, yeah, let me say a word about that. I, I, I think that I, I agree with that. Um, the, the, the source of my hope on this front is in the fact that people are not satisfied with the status quo. You don't find a lot of people saying things are great. American culture is just where it ought to be. Our politics is wonderful. Let's keep at it. You find instead a lot of people on all sides who say this is dreadful. How do we do things differently? Now, that doesn't mean they're ready to become better people, or that any of us are. We're still buying these things. We're still doing these things. But I think that there is some openness to a way forward that begins by offering us belonging and affiliation and something to respect and admire and be part of, and that then proceeds to form us in light of that good. And that's what institutions do. They first offer us a place and I mean, you know, institutions from the family and the community and the church and the school all the way up to our national politics, the economy along the way, uh, you know, a workplace. Think about what you're proud of, what you're proud to tell people that you're part of. Those institutions 
ultimately are the ways that we can change our own expectations and uh, and, and 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 tastes. And they do that by offering us the chance to be part of something worthwhile and then demanding that we become worthwhile so that we can be part of it. Um, that means we can think about incentives, we can think about institutional reforms, we can think about offering people different options. This isn't going to happen by going backward. It's not going to happen by getting rid of anything. We're not going to get rid of the smartphone. We're not going to get rid of, of, of social media. The question is, how are we going to use them in ways we can feel better about and there's a business opportunity in that. There's a political opportunity in that. There's a cultural opportunity. So I think there's a lot of room now for people to offer better forms of modern life. Uh, and that means seeing that, that forward is the way, not backward. Um, just to, again, illustrate the complexity of this challenge is uh, I imagine that if, if you were sitting across from Jack Dorsey, uh, the CEO of Twitter and and laying out this this I think com- very compelling argument to him, I suspect that one of the things he would say is, well, that's exactly why we have our code of conduct, right? That's why we have our hate speech policies because we understand we're an institution and we're trying to shape the individuals and the conversation on our platform to adhere to a certain level or a certain group of norms, right? That we, that we think are, are super important for having a polite uh, and effective conversation. Now, there are some users who would, you know, absolutely agree with that and say, yes, that's exactly right. There are a whole host of, uh, of users, however, who would say, no, no, those rules are exactly the type of corrosive Mm-hmm. Uh, manipulation that's leading to the problems that Yuval is laying out. Yeah, and I, I think part of the problem is that both those groups now feel like they have to be on Twitter. Um, and the fact is, neither of them needs to be on Twitter. And nobody needs to be on Twitter. I, I don't think our salvation is going to come from the platforms. Um, and, you know, it, in a sense, it's going to come from actual formative institutions that we're part of that force us to constrain or shape our engagement with those platforms. It's going to come from an employer that says, we have a code of conduct about what it means to to identify yourself as working for us and being on Twitter. Um, it's going to come from a sense that, that, that it's conveyed to you uh, in school, at church, that says, when we say you should be a good person, we mean on Facebook too. Um, I think that th- that kind of modernization of our sense of what's required um, of decent behavior in modern America is going to have to happen over time as we come to recognize that so much of the trouble we face happens in this online world that we too easily treat as an exception to our social lives, when in fact it has become a kind of substitute for them and has to be treated seriously, taken treated accordingly. Yeah, it's it's... It's an excellent point that you make. So, I, you know, uh, so I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a member of Capitol Hill Baptist Church uh, here in Washington, D.C. And this idea of, you know, your your faith, your public witness does not stop <laughs> at the doors of the church. Right. And, and the the amount of conversation that has uh, occurred about um, having a coherent witness online has been significant. Mm. Over the last couple of years, and I'm I'm frankly encouraged, and I'm it's by no means the only place where that's occurring. I'm sure that's occurring in, in lots and lots of places, uh, but just in terms of my own 
kind of lived experience. Um, yeah, you know, I think part of what makes that difficult is that it's sometimes hard to say whether social media is public or private. Um, and so it's hard to know whether we should behave there like we do with our friends or whether we should behave there like we do at work or, uh, or in school or in church. And that, that's just a, a, an inherent difficulty in the medium. But I, I think we have to come to understand that what we do on social media is essentially public. And as long as that's the case, we should behave as we would in public, which is not how a lot of people behave on social media. Yeah, and I would echo just, I would encourage individuals just generally to strive to act coherently in all places, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Uh, that, that's the ideal outcome that we should be pursuing. Yeah. Okay, so uh, you you make a very good point that look, we should not be looking to social media companies themselves as a as a source of salvation on these matters. Nevertheless, uh, in previous conversations that you and I have had, you have kicked around a, a particular idea about you know maybe there is a way. So we'll use Twitter as an example um, that um, that we might improve the conversation somewhat. Uh, lay that idea out and, and let's play with it a little bit. Well, it's definitely not a developed idea, just to be clear. But I think part of the problem we face um, it, when we engage, especially with expertise on social media, is that it's very hard to know who actually possesses meaningful expertise. This is part of the, of the appeal, the advantage of social media, that you don't have to be a, a formal expert to offer an opinion. And, and that can be extremely valuable, as we've seen in the course of the pandemic, for example. But it also means that as an observer of all this, it becomes very difficult to know what conversation you're actually observing. And I think that whether as uh, a function of something that the platforms themselves would do, or really more likely as, a, as more of a kind of bottom-up framework, um, it could make sense to think of social media in terms of distinct, almost moderated conversations, where when it comes to expertise in particular, um, you know, a, a term like, uh, like public health Twitter, which we've become familiar with over the last few years, would actually mean something. You, you would have to somehow um, show some proof that you belong in the conversation before you um, before you have the badge that says I belong in the conversation. Now this begins to sound like a, a disaster when we you know when, when it simply sounds like another form um, of, of providing people with some kind of elite accreditation. But I think there is a middle ground between that kind of pure elite accreditation, and a completely open space where you have no idea what to make of the information you're receiving. If part of the problem we face is that a loss of trust is engendered by the fact that there is no formality on social media, there are no layers, there is no hierarchy, um, there's some middle ground to be had through self-organized conversations, groups of people who are engaged with each other uh, in line with some norms, with some expectations of proof, with some openness to debate that allows you to say, this is a conversation I want to listen to, and for that to mean something. I think the, the totally open nature of the contemporary platforms is something that can't really endure, where everybody's just on Twitter in the same way. Um, if we're going to rely on Twitter for expertise, which look, we don't have to, but apparently we're going to, uh, we need to think about how to actually do that in a way that provides us with useful and reliable information. Well, and importantly, as I've as I've heard you describe this previously, you're not saying you shut down the broader conversation, right? Absolutely, so, right. You know, you, you still have the the kind of open, normal Twitter out there, but 
if you are so inclined to want to know, okay, what does the expert community on topic X, what is that internal conversation looking like? Even just as a point of comparing and contrasting that, right. it, that it's there, right. That it's there to be seen. Um, the thing I like about that is that it's actually reflective of how we, we all actually operate. So there's, there's a very um, distinct kind of anti-elite sense uh, that's you know often characterized our our nation's history, but it's it seems particularly acute right now. Mm-hmm. But it's present in all of us. So you know if you're a mechanic and you're trying to you know have a conversation about you know some some difficulty with a particular uh, car or part, you naturally are going to take advice and observations from fellow mechanics in a much more serious way naturally than you know something i might say right that doesn't mean i can't know something about it it's just that as a general point you're going to appeal and and trust that community more same thing if you're you know if you're if you're a mom and you know you're wanting to have a conversation about uh raising children it's not that a, a man or a woman without children can't have insight and wisdom into the conversation but that you do naturally preference those with children as having a type of experiential wisdom that you prioritize and and are more likely to to kind of turn to and rely on. And you're happy to at least fold that into uh, your thinking. So what you're describing to me sounds like a a technical version of doing just that. Now, it gets complicated when you start thinking about, well, okay, do do the companies, are they the ones who do the verification? Is there some outside group that does the verification? Different issues, you know, medical Twitter would be different than like political Twitter, things yeah. like that. But this is a type of way of not depending upon us getting rid or even fundamentally changing social media, but essentially broadening it in such a way as to where there's more clarity on what you're engaging at, at any given time. Yeah, and I, and I, I think it, it speaks to the way in which we build trust in experts in the real world, which has a lot to do not only with what they know, but with the, the rules that are imposed on them regarding what they will claim to know. Um, a lot, you know, we trust scientists not just because they've learned more about biology or chemistry than we have, but because they follow a process where before they make a certain kind of claim, they go through several steps. When we trust journalists to the extent that anybody does, it's because we also think that they've gone through some process before they come out and tell us something. The same is true of a lot of professionals. We trust them because there are things they wouldn't do. And on social media, it doesn't seem to us like there are things anybody wouldn't say. Um, And one, one thing that would define these kinds of distinct conversations is that there has to be some boundaries on what you can claim something you have to work through before you can make a claim. Uh, now, as you say, obviously, as a, this is not an idea that's ready for prime time. I mean, as a practical matter, how do you actually get there in a reliable way and prevent all the kinds of elitisms that drive people crazy in the real world is a huge question. But if we, if we can see this as somehow broadly preferable to simply the open space we think about now, then at least we would have a sense of what we're trying to get at. So thinking about this in the context of the ongoing conversation on the political right, often referred to as the, 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 the realignment, right? Or the, just the, the evolution of, 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 of the political right. Um, 
how how are these dynamics contributing to uh, that that realignment or to the evolution of political perspectives and and even you know advocacy and and the policies that are being pursued uh, on the right side of the political spectrum? So I think that there are, there are obviously a lot of ways to to describe that uh, that that evolution that uh, you know whether we think about it as a realignment. Um, I, I think one useful way for this conversation to think about that is that the right has become in our lifetime the outside party in American life rather than the inside party, and this wasn't always the case. Um, if you ask yourself, you know, the outside party thinks that it is banging on the windows, everything is run by other people, and you talk about the country's institutions in terms of they and them, and not our and us. Um, you know, for example, the, if the outside party is not happy with an election result, it's going to say that the elites who run the corporations and the elites who run the government have uh, stamped out the people's will. The inside party, if it's not happy, is going to say the Russians stole our election. In, in 1980, the right would have talked like that. And, and its conspiracies would be about the Russians. The left would have talked like the outside party, and its conspiracies would be all about the corporations and the elites who run things. They've switched sides. And in so many ways now, the right is the outside party. The right is the party that's arguing for free speech on campus, right? That's, that was literally the motto of the, of the left-wing revolutionary movement on campus in the 60s. That's now our goal. Um, and I, I think what it means in this moment to be the outside party is that you, you, you seek these kinds of unmoderated venues for, for exchange and for argument. And so we have lost sight of the value of institutions in a lot of ways, of the need for them. We want to burn them down because we identify them with our political adversaries. And we don't, I think, stop enough to think about their value and therefore why, if we're going to abandon traditional institutions, we need at least to build new ones. And we also need to be very careful about abandoning those old ones because they're going to matter whether we like them or not. So I think the right is in a moment when it's particularly blind to the significance and value and usefulness of institutions. And the left is in a moment when, as the inside party often is, it is blind to the fact of its own uh, a monopoly over these institutions. It doesn't quite see that w- what it's doing is oppressive, that it, the way in which it is using its control of the institutions um, is domineering, is illiberal, is oppressive. And so there's a, there's a, there's a shortage of self-awareness at this point on both sides of our culture war. And a greater appreciation of how institutions function, I think, would help both sides have a better understanding of their situation and therefore of what they need. And, you know, all of this is exacerbated by social media and all the ways we've uh, we've gestured toward already. So as we, number one, I think that is dead on. I, I think that is an excellent analysis of the situation. Um. So, so taking that then, um, how do people like you and I, and then just listeners to this podcast, which, you know, are going to include political business leaders as, as well as, you know, just laypersons who are interested in, in these types of issues, how therefore should we live? What, any key recommendations from you in terms of 
okay, I'm not going to go out and try and fix everything, but in terms of my own uh, lived life, how should I be thinking about this? For me, it really starts with that basic question I suggested earlier, which is before making an important decision, ask yourself, given the role that I have here, how should I behave? And that, that can be as a parent, as a neighbor, as a member of a congregation, as a pastor, as a teacher, as a member of Congress, as a CEO, whatever you are. And all of us have important roles to play in some set of institutions in our lives. We have to ask ourselves, not just what do I want, not just how do I get back at that guy, not just even how do I want to be seen, but given the role I have here, how should I behave? Allow the institutions we care about the ones that we ourselves allow ourselves to be defined by, let them, in fact, shape your choices and judgments. And let yourself say, not what am I going to do, but what is the person who is in charge of this supposed to do? And in this case, that's me. Um, I think beginning with that, and it's a small thing, it's not social revolution, but that small step in key moments makes a huge difference. And ultimately, it can also help us to demand that kind of thinking from other people, from people that we entrust with various things, from people who run institutions, from people who play important roles in our lives. And that's how cultural change happens. I'm not a believer in top-down cultural change. I don't think that, that, that it can ever really succeed that way. It has to begin with a recognition that problems start with us and solutions can start with us too. Uh, that any mode of hope in a free society has got to work from the bottom up. And so at first, you've got to ask yourself, what should I do? And that's a question that we're in need of asking constantly before every big decision. That's good. Now, uh, I have not done this before, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a shot and we'll see if it works. And if you can't think of anything, that's perfectly fine. Is there a, is there a question that you would want to ask me? Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of questions I'd want to ask you. I, I, I guess the, the question I wonder about now that I think to myself, you know, I wonder what Klein would say about this, has to do with how concerned should we really be about the, 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 the course of what people vaguely and crudely call artificial intelligence in, uh, in the national security arena, but also in general, there's such a divergence between kind of intense panic and total dismissal that I'm left not knowing at all how to think about. Yeah. So there's a great deal of marketing around artificial intelligence. Um, It's, it's not what it could be, but I do think that artificial intelligence is already very powerful and influential and it has the potential of becoming much of what it's promised to be. Um, Right now, artificial intelligence is um, very, very good at discrete tasks. And many of those tasks, it already exceeds human capacity. So things like, um, you know, image recognition, right? An artificial intelligence algorithm is able to, uh, to, to consume and understand and then know things about a, a, a volume of information that no human ever could, and at a speed that is just completely unapproachable by, by human standards. Um, and I think a lot of people would be surprised by 
how many things we tend to think of as being distinctly human are actually just pretty narrow processes hmm. and, and, and could be repeated quite effectively by, by machines. Once you get beyond that, once you start thinking about general purpose um, artificial intelligence, that gets really hard. And, and the reality is that um, more of that may be available to us than we think, but we have such little understanding when it comes down to it about how the human mind works and, 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 and its real capabilities that assessing that assessing an AI's ability, you know, relative to that becomes very, very difficult. Hmm. So, um, I'm, I think I'm going to steal, you know, your formulation of, uh, I'm not a pessimist, neither am I an optimist. Um, I am hopeful, but in my specific field of national security, I think that artificial intelligence may be the most consequential, uh, capability that we have developed Hmm. ever. And, and a close peer to that, if it's realizable, I don't know if it will be, would be quantum computing. I just think that the technologies are so powerful and so broadly applicable that it, it will change, um, you know, much of what we know about everything in those respective fields. Hmm. Okay. Uh, you've all, the, I was very much looking forward to this conversation. It did not disappoint. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for the work that you're doing uh, individually, but then also on behalf of uh, AI. And um, it was a real pleasure having you. Well, thank you, Klein. I really appreciate it. And having you as a colleague is one of the great things about AI. So I appreciate it.